It's a joy to be with you today and a great joy to, beginning, uh, to be beginning our new series in the book of 1 John. As we begin that series, let us turn our Bibles to 1 John chapter 1 as we find ourselves in verses 1 through 4 of the text. 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. There John pens these words. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. There is, I think we all understand, a significant difference between knowing about someone and knowing them personally, isn't there? We see extreme versions of this in our culture that is obsessed with celebrity. And there are numerous people, maybe you know some of them, maybe you are some of them, who speak of celebrities as if they're their best friends. They speak of their favorite actor or actress or author as if they know them personally, even though they've never really spoken to them, they've never met them. And we all understand that's weird. That's an odd thing to do. Don't be that person. But even if you don't go to that level, we can be guilty of of mistaking what it really means to know someone. I mean, we, we live in a relatively small town, and, and so there's that tendency when we hear someone speak of someone they know, we, we respond with saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that person. Yeah, I know them. When we really don't know that person, do we? We might know their name. We might know their mom or dad, or we might share a similar friend, but we don't really know that person. We understand there's that difference, and it's a difference of knowledge. It's a difference of, of care, of love, and concern. And it's dangerous when we forget this because we might be prone to to receive false information about a person we don't truly know and accept it as truth. And so you might hear someone say, oh yeah, I heard so-and-so is real arrogant. I heard they're just a real jerk. And if we don't know that person, we might think, okay, yeah, no, I, I believe that. And we just pass that information along as if that's relational, true knowledge. Or in the same way, we might hear someone say, oh, they're the greatest person ever, and we might just accept that to be true, and we pass it on as if we know it to be a fact. When in reality, if we don't know that person, we really can't be certain who they are or what they're like. We are commanded to assume the best, I believe. And we must be careful in understanding what we know for a fact and what we know in theory. Tragically, this difference of knowledge is perhaps most clearly seen in the way people speak of Jesus. There are countless people that talk about Jesus. They speak of Jesus. And they might say things like, oh yeah, Jesus, I know him. Jesus, I believe in him. What they're really saying is they've heard some things about Jesus they like. And so they like to think that they line up with those individual things. And, and a lot of people might think that's what it means to be a Christian. To know a lot about Jesus. Or know about the concept of Christianity. But the problem with that, of course, is that's not biblical Christianity. And as we'll see throughout our study of 1 John, and immediately in the words of 1 John, biblical Christianity is based around knowing the person, Jesus Christ, personally. 
having a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it is essential that if you call yourself a believer that you understand what it is you're saying you really know or who it is you are claiming you really know. Because if we are not certain on this fact, then not only will our doctrines prove to to be a bit suspect, but ultimately our lives as well will begin to look over time, not really so much like Christ of the Bible, but the Christ of our culture, the Christ of our personal preferences. And so as to combat that tendency and, and really to address that idea of how you can be certain that you know Jesus Christ, John writes this letter to his audience. And my hope is that as we study through this book beginning today, that we might walk away with, with not just a greater appreciation of the doctrines of Christ, but we might walk away with a greater sense of love for the person Jesus Christ. We might not speak of Jesus as some distant figure or some concept we read about in a textbook, but that we speak of Christ as our dearest friend, as the one we are devoted to, our greatest love, our greatest devotion. That's my prayer for all of us. And so as we begin our time today, we'll be exploring what that means to know the person Christ. We'll explore what the message is that is being written here and explore why this message was so important then and remains so important now as well. With that being said, let me go and open us up in a word of prayer. We'll start digging into this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven, we come before you humble. We come before you asking your spirit to be at work in our hearts. God, we live in a world that is so incredibly confused as to what it means to be a Christian. We live in a culture in which there are an infinite number of of Christs that people speak of. And we see people attach the name of Jesus to, to the most wicked of actions, God. And in the midst of all that confusion, in the midst of of people who claim to know Jesus yet look nothing like Jesus, it's easy for ourselves to become confused. And it's easy to ask ourselves whether or not we really know Jesus too, or are we just mistaken? God, I pray that as we begin our time in 1 John, that you begin to remove that confusion from us. What a precious blessing it is to know that we can know for certain whether or not we know Jesus. What a precious truth it is to be reminded of the fact that that there's no reason to doubt one's salvation if one simply can understand who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. God, this morning I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who do know you. Might you remove their confusion. Might you convict us of our hearts of where we perhaps have fallen short of looking like Jesus and sounding like Jesus. Might you remove our idols where we have perhaps replaced the real Jesus with the Jesuses of our own culture. And as a result, might we love him more. Father, I pray for those in here who are deceived, who believe not in Jesus but in the concept of Christ, and who are actually headed to hell. I pray that you open their eyes to that truth. I pray they see Jesus as far more beautiful, far more precious than whatever it is they've placed their faith in. And I pray you save them this morning. God, bless our time here. Cause us to be focused entirely on the word and cause us to walk away with a greater sense of awe and appreciation of your son, Jesus Christ who died for our sins and who sits enthroned with you in heaven. Jesus, it is to your name that we pray these things. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Ultimately, as we look at 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4, our desire is to understand both the message and ultimate purpose in writing this letter. 
But in order to to really appreciate that message, we first have to take a step back and understand the world of 1 John. Because as we understand that world, not only can we better appreciate the message, but I think we see how it is immediately applicable in our own world today. And so it's important to understand who wrote this letter, why he wrote it, who he wrote it to. Now, in answering the question of who wrote 1 John, a lot of you probably will not be super surprised to find out that the author's name is John. There you go. There's your one fact for the day. It might be obvious to all of us because it's titled 1 John, but it's perhaps important to note that, that there has been some debate over the centuries as to who actually wrote this letter. There's a number of different theories that have been shot out there, but, but ultimately I think we can confidently say that this is in fact John, the, the disciple, John the apostle. That authorship can be proven in a variety of ways, in part it can be proven in the fact that it's so similar to Second and Third John where the elder John is named. And it can also be seen in the similarities between First John and the Gospel of John. As we'll see here in a few minutes, John very clearly is repeating phrases, very clearly drawing from that earlier Gospel. And so as we read these words of First John, it is valuable to note that we're not reading the words of, of just some philosopher that lived centuries after Jesus. We're reading the words of someone who walked side by side with Jesus Christ. Someone who knew the sound of Jesus' voice. Someone who knew the the feel of Jesus' touch. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? It's amazing to think when when John says Jesus says this, it's not some concept. He's speaking of what he, he knows firsthand from his dear friend, Jesus Christ. John is described in in the Gospels, in, in John chapter 20, as the, the beloved disciple, and so he, he wasn't simply a disciple, he was a close companion of Christ. He was one of the few up on the Mount of Transfiguration. John was in many ways the disciple's disciple. He was the guy, he was there to hear and see all of these things. At this point in time when he writes this first epistle, this first John, those events are long gone, those are well past in his own life. And it appears as he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that, that John is coming to the end of his life. He's an old man that's believed that this was written around 90 AD. You can pick that up when John speaks of, of the little children in the church as John speaks very much of the fathers, a grandfather, speaking lovingly to these people and this community that he's ministered to for so many years. Those people to whom he ministers, that audience of John, It is believed would have been a a number of different churches in this particular community, most likely in an Asia Minor area. You can think of of cities like Ephesus. There's believers scattered around Ephesus and other cities that are are receiving this letter of John, people that John would have ministered to personally. And as believers in that region, they would have already experienced a a great number of, of things as Christians, somewhat of a roller coaster relationship they would have had in the church. You can read of the city of Ephesus and the church there as far back in the book of Acts. And in fact, I ask you to turn back to Acts because it really sets the stage for the problems that have arisen over the years. In Acts chapter 20, we have none other than the apostle Paul, another great follower of Christ, of course, who had done a great amount of work in Ephesus to build up the church to share the gospel. And at the end of his ministry there in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, Picking it up in verse 28, we read this message that is being given to believers in the city of Ephesus. 
Acts chapter 20, 28. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And he goes through and instructs how they are to respond to this inevitable danger that will arise as, as teachers will come from within the body. And we look back at that passage because I think it really sets the stage and explains why John is, is now writing this letter. For it seems that by the time the year 90 has arrived, that, that the promise of Paul has come to fruition. Those savage wolves have in fact made themselves known. And John writes in response to these false teachers that have come about in these churches and are, are causing a great amount of confusion amongst the believers, perhaps even drawing many of them away and from many others, causing them to doubt the gospel, to doubt their own salvation. As you read through the letter of 1 John, you can pick up a, a few details regarding who these false teachers are, what they were like, what they taught. John does not give us the, the full breakdown of their belief system. But we can pick up on a few, I think, important details that all show how dangerous these people really were. One of the main observations to be made about these teachers, as Paul himself said in Acts, is that these individuals came from the church. These were once professing believers. You can pick up on that if you flip over to 1 John chapter 2. One of the most famous passages in 1 John in which he speaks to these false teachers. John says in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, they, that is these false teachers, they went out from us. They were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. So it would be shown to you that they are not of us. Now, even if you know nothing else about these false teachers, even if you know nothing about their doctrine, the fact that these people broke off from the church demonstrates just how dangerous they must have been to the community. For it's one thing if we worry about that, that outside influence of the world, these strange teachers from distant lands coming in. Those people exist, obviously, but they're not the dangerous influences in the church, are they? No, it's the people that look like you, that sound like you. The false teachers that John writes against are the friends of the people that are reading this letter. These are family members. And if, if you understand that, you can see why this would cause so much confusion. In fact, Many of you perhaps have, have experienced this type of confusion if the loved one has walked away from the faith. A loved one who once professed faith is now asking questions about Christ that you don't really know how to answer. And, and it's easy to start wondering, well, I mean, if they weren't really saved, what, am I saved? I mean, they seem to be so knowledgeable and, and they once claimed Christ, so how am I supposed to respond to this? This is especially dangerous when in the days of John, so many of these believers would have been so young so young in the faith, so inexperienced in many ways. It's important to note, of course, these false teachers are not just mistaken on a few minor points here or there. Again, as you read through the, God, the, the work of 1 John, you see there are a variety of false doctrines that they are proclaiming. We don't have time to delve into all of them this morning. We'll, we'll get into many of those teachings as we go through our study. But namely, perhaps most importantly, we see these false teachers have a wrong doctrine about the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see this hinted at in, in a number of texts, even from the beginning as John speaks of the physical body of Christ, and later on he will speak of the blood atoning work, the, the atoning work of, of Christ's blood. 
Again, while we cannot know all the details of their belief systems, it seems these people have, have married the Christian faith with, with Greco-Roman, with pagan beliefs and philosophies. Years on after the book, after First uh, John was written, you have that great heresy of Gnosticism, a word that is thrown around regularly in church history. Um, while there's far too much there to discuss this morning, it, it is that idea of, of trying to divide the spiritual from the material, and many of them would deny the, the physical reality of Christ. It seems these false teachers in the book of 1 John have, have done something along those lines. They're denying the material reality of Jesus Christ. Just as importantly, it is clear that these false teachers can be seen as false by their lifestyle. A lot of times we do not think of, of lifestyle or characteristics in terms of what it means about false teachers, but, but throughout the letter of 1 John, we see he takes very seriously the lifestyle of these people. And so you see these false teachers throughout the first John are also marked by a lack of understanding of sin, the seriousness of sin. You see that in the first chapter, in chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It seems that these false teachers are, are denying the reality of sin in their own lives. Just as seriously, John says these false teachers are marked by a lack of love of other believers. Well, this is a significant theme of 1 John from the beginning to the end where, where one of the main tests John gives of whether or not you are in the faith is whether or not you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, this is one of those tests that I think we do not think nearly enough about in our culture today. I think when a lot of us think of false teaching, our minds immediately go to doctrine. We want to know what they say about Christ, how they define sovereignty of God, how they define salvation, and those are important things. But one important theme, one important lesson that John teaches us throughout this letter, as we'll see, is, is even if they get all those things right, if they don't love people, odds are they don't actually know Jesus. They don't actually know him. They know about him, they don't know what it means to be a Christ follower. And so throughout this letter, John gives a number of these tests, a number of these passages in which he says, here's the false teachers and how, here's how you can know that you're not one of them. And those tests, again, include tests of doctrine, tests of, of ethics, and, and tests of just relationships. And as John writes of these tests and speaks of these false teachers, his desire, again, is not simply to put down those false teachers. His desire is to, to assure the believers that, that you really can know for sure whether or not you know Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you can know this morning whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. And John makes this clear. This is one of the reasons why I think it's so valuable to study a book like 1 John today. For again, we live in a world that is incredibly confused, don't we? And we live in a world in which there are so many people that claim to know about Christ, but they speak of such different doctrines. They, they look so differently than the Jesus of the Bible. In the midst of all those various points of, of differences of doctrine and lifestyles, it's easy to question our own salvation. And I could ask for a show of hands this morning of how many of you have doubted whether or not you're saved, and I would, I would assume that the overwhelming majority of you would raise your hand. I would raise my hand. It's a common struggle for believers. I was in youth ministry for, for eight years, and I would guess that pretty much every kid that grew up in the church struggled with, with assurance of salvation across the board. It happens. And even if you cannot honestly say you've struggled with this, odds are, or not odds are, you do know someone that struggles with this assurance. 
And so in answering to that question of how can a person really know they know Jesus, we have the letter of 1 John, and we have this glorious message that John writes to these confused believers, these believers in desperate need of clear direction. As we jump back into the text then and see 1 John chapter 1, we see immediately in these opening verses, John really hits the ground running and speaking of the message that he is trying to explain and explore with these believers. We see that message in particular there in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. Again, follow along with me if you will in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. There he says, what, we, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifested. And we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, we see that John is concerned to make this specific message known to the believers. That message which is summarized in the phrase, this word of life. And from the outset, we can make a few observations about what this word of life is, what, what we must understand about it. First and foremost, we see that this word of life is from the beginning. That is to say, it has always been around. It is unchanging. Now, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, these opening words of 1 John are probably at least somewhat familiar to you, aren't they? For John opens up in a very similar uh, manner in his Gospel. For hear these words of John in John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into into being uh, through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being. Again, it's that language of from the beginning this has existed. It is never changing. Now in the Gospel of John, John's focus I think is a bit more narrow. It's specifically on the person of Christ. That is, Jesus Christ is eternal. And in this passage, in 1 John, it is a somewhat similar message, but I think he speaks more broadly and speaks of the gospel message itself. This idea that the true message of the gospel is itself unchanging. God's plan has never changed. And from the outset, you can understand why that unchanging nature would be so important to remember if you're prone to fall in line with these false teachers. For consider the the plight of these believers in in John's community. Here they are, walking along just fine, thinking they know everything they need to be saved, and then suddenly, the guy they sat next to in church last week says, hey, guess what? I found out you're missing something. You actually need to know this additional truth in order to really be saved, in order to really know God. Here's a new piece of information for you. And so frequently, the false teaching that came into the church in the New Testament fell along those lines. It was new revelation, new teaching, something that allowed you to know God better than before. And there's something attractive about about that which is new, isn't there? You see this all the time in in deconversion stories that you hear in our culture. Where someone will speak so negatively about, you know, their younger years when they blindly followed the teachings of the Bible. But then something happened. And God opened their eyes to a new revelation. A new understanding. And suddenly they, they knew God in a way they never knew before. Why? Because, well, there's this new information that has been given to them. 
even if we do not have a deconversion story of our own, we again are all still prone to believe and be attracted to that which is new. There's something attractive about it. We don't like being old-fashioned, at least a lot of us don't. We like to think that we're up to date on these things. And so there's something important and something encouraging to be reminded of the fact that, that the gospel we have isn't new. Far from it. It's as old-fashioned as you can possibly get, for it is from before time began. And John says, that's the message we proclaim. It's nothing new to you. We didn't come up with this on our own. This is the message, and it will never change. Nothing will ever be added to it. Well, of course, that would cause someone to ask, how can you possibly know that, John? How could anyone be so certain that that message is true? Well, that brings him to the second point about his message. That being that the message was made manifest in Christ Jesus. Again, listen to the the language that John uses to speak of his certainty. Looking back at verse 1, he says, What was from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. The reason why John can know without a doubt that his message is accurate, and the reason why we as Christians can be certain in a way that no other religion can ever possibly be certain is because it was manifested to us in the physical body of our, son, of, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The reason why John is so confident is because he didn't just hear some distant message from God, he saw God with his eyes. And God spoke to him. God walked alongside him, of course, in the Son, Jesus Christ. I think so oftentimes because we hear of the gospel work so frequently or we've heard the stories of Jesus so frequently, we lose sight of how mind-blowing that reality is. That in Jesus Christ we have God incarnate. There's a reason why the religious leaders freaked out when Jesus claimed that. Because it was beyond anything they could possibly imagine. It sounded blasphemous to them. And yet John heard that message over and over again. John didn't just hear about Jesus being seen in his glory in the transfiguration. He watched it happen. John didn't just hear about Jesus feeding the thousands. He passed out the loaves and the fishes to the thousands. John didn't just hear about the authority with which Jesus spoke. John was struck by that authority, not just as he spoke to people, but as he commanded creation as he calmed storms, as he got rid of of diseases, as he cast demons out of people, John heard it all. Most importantly, John would have been there, of course, to physically see the resurrected Jesus Christ. You can think back to the story of of Thomas and those accounts of of Jesus' resurrection. Thomas, who who doubted, right, who struggled to believe that that Jesus could possibly be risen from the dead, and yet Jesus shows up and he offers Thomas the chance to touch his wounds. See, Thomas, look, observe, examine. Again, John was not just speaking of some teacher living centuries after Jesus' life. When John spoke of Jesus, he spoke of, of his closest friend. I think of oftentimes I... I miss the significance of that fact and how oftentimes when I speak of Jesus, I speak of him just as some concept instead of a real person. When we do that, we open the door for other false teachers to come in and say, well, I heard this about Jesus or I heard that. But no, when we know Jesus personally, when we can hear his voice in the word, we can say, no, no, 
Now, Jesus would never have said that. Jesus would never have done that. I know Jesus. Jesus is my friend. That's something John himself proclaimed. And so as he speaks to these people in, the, the John, in John's community, you can imagine him saying, don't listen to those false teachers. They weren't there. They didn't hear Jesus speak. I heard Jesus speak. Remember, guys, this is something I heard, something I saw, something I touched. Don't buy into these loonies that are coming in and saying, oh, yeah, no, no, there's this new teaching. Oh, listen to me, believers. Because this message was made manifest in Christ physically. The eternal entered into time incredibly. And so John says regarding this message, it's not just a textbook message, it is a person that he proclaims. And indeed, the third point regarding that message is that. That which John knew was from the beginning, that which John saw with his own eyes, is the same thing, the same person that John now proclaims. Again, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. John is, is insistent upon the idea that the message they would have heard from him, again, is nothing new. And it's nothing that John added to, nor did any of the other apostles add to. That message was the exact message given to them in the person of Jesus Christ. You see that, that proclamation from the very beginning of the church. Turn with me, if you will, back to Acts again. Acts chapter 1, really into Acts chapter 2, I guess I should say. You have this great sermon of the Apostle Peter, someone who also would have seen Jesus, heard Jesus, touched Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, he delivers this long message, this great sermon to, to bring others to Christ. And at the end of it, at Acts chapter 2, verse 36, we read these words. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And he goes in and calls for them for, to repent, to believe, to do that which Christ uh, commands. Similar language can be found if you read the, the messages of, of Paul. In 1 Corinthians, he speaks of the fact that, that he did not come with some new message, new philosophy. No, he came and preached Christ crucified. That's it. From the very beginning, Peter and John and Paul and James and all these people are not proclaiming some message. That is, some theory. They're proclaiming the person, Jesus Christ. And they're claiming, proclaiming Christ's kingdom. This might seem obvious to us, but, but it's important to take note of, right? Because if, if you're one of the apostles, you would no doubt understand the appeal to, to maybe adding to that proclamation as time went on, right? I mean, the, the church was being built up in, in some very educated areas, very academic areas, and so it, it probably would have been attractive for some to say, okay, yeah, there's the person Jesus, but can we talk more about kind of this Greco-Roman philosophy stuff? Maybe that would sound a little more attractive, a little more impressive to people. Can we delve into these other areas that, that these Stoic philosophers delve into? Can we delve into these other areas that talk about the spiritual and material? Can we talk about that? And, and time and time again, biblical apostles say, nope, Christ. We preach Christ. We proclaim Christ. That's it. That is our message from the beginning through the end. That is the unchanging message. And it remains the unchanging message today for our church. For all churches. We do not 
win people over by proclaiming some newfound philosophy. People are not saved by that. We proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. And again, there's something so encouraging about that proclamation for any believer who is struggling, who is wrestling with whether or not they know the truth. For when you hear false teachers or hear other people speak of of some of those newer doctrines or newer teachings, it's easy for them to think, well, I I could never understand that. So, I don't know, maybe I don't know the truth. Maybe I I can't be certain whether or not I'm a Christian. But, But John comes and says, no, if you know Jesus, you're saved. You know Jesus, you have eternal life. That is it. That is the constant message. And so as John writes this letter to these believers of his time, and as he writes it to us, he reminds us that that that's it. That is his constant message. But having said that, of course, there still is the question of, well, well, why? What is the purpose of John writing this letter? We understand that the message is important, but he's already preached this message before. So why repeat it now? Why proclaim the gospel to people that already believe the gospel? Seems like a waste of time, doesn't it? And yet we see, of course, John saying, oh no, there's clear purposes to this. Those purposes are brought out again in verses 3 through 4. Look with me, if you will, and you see two purposes laid out by John. Once again, he says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete two purposes that John has in mind as he writes this letter. The first, an immediate purpose, is that which he labels as fellowship. One of those Christian words we love to throw around and so oftentimes abuse, misuse, and miss just how deep and significant of a word this is. This idea of fellowship is the idea of of common participation, but common participation in what? A picnic? Fried chicken? Or, Or hanging out and watching a game? No, it's more than that, and just to let you know, I love church picnics, and I love eating fried chicken with people. I love playing games with people, but, but the fellowship that John speaks of speaks to a deeper reality than that, isn't it? For he speaks of a fellowship that is experienced both with John, that is to say other believers, but even more shockingly, it's a fellowship that we have with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We have this idea of common participation and union with the almighty creator of the universe and his son. And John, of course, is not just pulling this out of a hat. He is referencing the clear teachings of Christ himself that is recorded in his gospel, John. Turn with me, if you will, back to John 17. Our own elder Larry referenced this in the scripture reading this morning uh, earlier. In John 17, we have this great high priestly prayer that Jesus prays on the behalf of believers. This prayer speaks directly to what John says here, and and I imagine these words of Jesus are ringing in John's own mind as he pens the words of 1 John. Follow with me, if you will, in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 13. He says, Now I have come to you, and is Jesus coming? These things I speak in the world, so they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask these on behalf I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This passing request that the Son makes on our behalf to the Father is awesome. And what are you saying? And in this passage, we see the fellowship that John says already exists for all who are truly in Christ. For he speaks of that which we share in common with each other, that is, we have all been brought into Jesus Christ. But he speaks of how we share that again with God. We are united with Christ. That union cannot be hindered. That union cannot be taken away by anything that a false teacher might say, by anything the world might bring to us. It is the the reality of fellowship that we experience. But of course, it's a fellowship. And it's a unity that Jesus speaks of here that that we so oftentimes miss out on in the world, don't we? We look at the church today and how sad it is that we're so quick to divide against each other. We live in a world in which we're obsessed with showing what makes us different from other believers, it seems. And we're so quick when we hear someone say one thing we disagree with, we separate ourselves off from them. And we say, oh, can't be influenced by that. Oh, can't be influenced by that. Until we find ourselves in the smallest possible clique of Christians and we think, oh, we alone have it. We are righteous. And not only are we hurting ourselves and making us easy targets for Satan, We're denying the fellowship that John says is a reality for all true believers. We're harming, ultimately, as we'll see here in a moment, the joy that can be experienced only in proper fellowship with other believers. Jesus prays that we might be united as Christians. How sad it is that we as Christians seem opposed to Jesus' prayer to the Father. John says this is the fellowship we have. What a great gift it is. What a great joy it is to know that that in other believers we have true brothers and sisters, and that we share this fellowship, not just with each other here in this room, with those of you who can't be here and watching online, but we share it with the eternal Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. John writes to the believers in First John to remind them of that fellowship, to remind them that those relationships matter, and how you interact with each other is a key test of whether or not you really know Jesus. And so know that fellowship. He, he writes with that purpose of fellowship in mind, but he goes even beyond that purpose. And he speaks ultimately there in verse 4 that he does these things, he proclaims these things, he seeks out this fellowship that our joy may be made complete. Now the first time I read this, honestly, I thought, huh? What, what does that have to do with joy, John? John's an apostle. John walked alongside Jesus. Does he really need the help of these people to complete his joy? What a weird statement of John. And yet he says this is the ultimate purpose why he writes. So that our joy can be made complete. So that there's nothing lacking in that fellowship. And again, John does not come up with this on his own. For again, if you look back throughout the gospel of John, you see Jesus regularly speaking of this joy regularly praying for this joy to be made complete in his children. 
You can hear of this joy spoken of by Jesus when he speaks of, of obedience. In John chapter 15, verses 10 and 11, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Again, reading the words of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse Verses 13 and following, he speaks of this prayer. And in verse 13, he says, I've come to you, these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full. When Jesus preaches that famous Sermon on the Mount, a sermon again John would have heard with his own ears. Jesus speaks of how happy, how blessed are those who, fill in the blank, are obedient to him. Time and time again, Jesus Christ speaks very clearly to the the product of joy that comes only in knowing him, only in being obedient to him. And as John reminds us, that joy is also only made complete when we're in proper relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We live in a world that is increasingly joyless. People are so angry and hurt and sad and anxious all the time. And it feels honestly almost an impossible task to to maintain joy in all of it, doesn't it? I get overwhelmed by the news, overwhelmed by the the vitriolic speech I see brothers and sisters in Christ spit at one another. And it's so hard to maintain joy in the midst of that. So easy to give in to the frustration and anger and disunity. But when we do that, we lose sight of of this great gift of joy that ought to characterize every single believer. G.K. Chesterton, a tremendous writer and believer from years ago, spoke of, of this joy being the giant secret of Christianity, that thing that the world claims it has, but that which only Christianity knows fully. And speaking to that gigantic joy, one commentator of G.K. Chesterton says this, a Christian's joy is not impervious to pain nor inattentive to heartbreak, What gigantic joy does is give a Christian a bottomless pool of hope that allows the Christian the energy and steadfastness to not grow weary in well-doing. This kind of joy is the secret of being able to face sin and sorrow honestly and still end the day singing the doxology. How rare it is to see a, a Christian really experiencing that joy. And yet John says, this joy can be yours, but only if you know Jesus. And it does not take a a great skilled theologian to understand how joy will naturally come about in the gospel, does it? For can you imagine anything more, more inspiring, anything more joyful to know that in the person of Christ, you can be fully known. All of your deepest, darkest sins, all those things that you are deeply ashamed of and would hate for the world to find out. Jesus knows every single one of them. And yet, even though you're deeply known and completely known, you are simultaneously completely loved and accepted by Christ. Because if you place your faith in him, all those things have been washed clean. There's nothing more joyful than that. In a similar way, connected way, there's nothing more joyful than, than being with friends who've experienced that same thing. To sit in a room like this and look around and see they too have been given that same gift. 
I think of the joy I experience when I spend time with my closest friends. How freeing that is. How amazing it is to just be able to be myself. Knowing that we share the most greatest thing in common with each other. So there's nothing to fear in that friendship. There's nothing to, to cause me to, to hide back and, and be ashamed of something. There's only love and joy. This is a joy that Satan would love to take away from us. This is a joy that the world wishes they could know. And it is a joy that is known only to those of us who know Jesus Christ, our Savior, our friend, the Son of God. And so as we close this morning and consider these words of John, I pray and I trust you do not have to think hard to to consider why we still desperately need this word of John today. For we are no less confused than the believers were in John's day. And there are no fewer false teachers today. And it's not like we live in a world that is just full of joy, unlike the world of John. No, the same needs exist. And so if you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that you understand that that I do not stand before you proclaiming some new philosophical thought. I'm not here to say, here are the ten steps to a better you and a better life. That might make you feel good in a moment, but it will send you to hell for all eternity and it will give you nothing but fleeting happiness. No, I stand before you this morning proclaiming the person Jesus Christ, who is love incarnate, he is God incarnate, And he died on the cross and rose again from the dead so that you too may be found alive. So you too may have joy. But that life, that joy is only found, of course, in trusting him. Placing your faith and trust entirely in him. Repenting of your sin. Asking for his forgiveness and following after him. As I say nearly every week, if you have any questions about that, please ask me today. Ask one of our elders, one of our pastors. Please seek someone out. Do not waste another moment. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we consider what we've been given, let us not be guilty of just thinking about the concepts of Christianity. But let us seriously meditate on the person of Jesus Christ. Let us love Jesus more deeply. Read through the Gospel of John. Study the Gospel of John and and pray to see the person of Christ with new eyes, to hear his voice in a way you've never heard it before. Read about him in the Word. If you need other resources that would help you think along these lines, let me suggest two books for you that have been incredible resources to me. The first is an old one. It's Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ by John Piper. Tremendously helpful resource to to think through the beauty and significance of Christ. A second book that just came out this last year is called Gentle and Lowly by Dana Ortland. A glorious work. That, that I heard numerous pastors that I adore say it's the best book written in the last 30 years. It's tremendous. And again, it just, it focuses in on the beauty and love and gentleness and compassion of Christ. And it will cause you to love him more. It will remind you that you are not serving an idea, but a person. And so let us meditate deeply on Christ. Let us be quick to speak about Jesus with others. Wouldn't that be Nice to maybe not talk quite as much about things that are just enraging you, 
and just talk with a fellow believer about what you love most about Jesus. It sounds so childish, doesn't it? But what a joy that is to just sit down at lunch and say, hey, what, what do you love most about Jesus? There's, here's something Jesus has done for me. What, what a joy that is. Talk about it with an unbeliever. And in so doing, let us strive to enjoy Christ more, believers. We have been given a gift that no one else has. The gift of life. And with that gift, there is joy, there is certainty. There is love that is eternal. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not be distracted by the world around us and all its joylessness and anger. Let us enjoy the fellowship that is true if we know Jesus. Let us enjoy that fellowship with God, with our fellow believers in Christ. And let us be known for our love, just as Jesus commands. Let us be known for our joy, that which Jesus gives. And let us eagerly anticipate the day when we will see the face of our Savior in his glorious kingdom. Let's close in prayer, and Jeff and the band will come out as we continue worship. Father in heaven, what a glorious message. What a glorious idea to be reminded of the fact that we do not serve just an empty concept drummed up by some dead philosopher. But we've been saved by you, by your son, Jesus Christ. Might we never grow tired of hearing that truth, God. Jesus, restore to us the joy that comes only in knowing you. Restore to us the joy that comes in true fellowship with you and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Cause us to be more certain of you every day. And as we enjoy that certainty, God, might we be quick to speak of you to the dying and dark and joyless world in which we live. We've been given a great gift, God, and we thank you for that. Let us not waste it. And Jesus, come back today. Deliver us into your home, God. We so desperately want to see you. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.